Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for this uh, story of Habakkuk. Um, It's this obscure little prophetical book, um, sort of set in... uh, obscurely in the pages of the Old Testament, uh, sort of in the pages in our Bible where, uh, where they're all stuck together and maybe have never even been opened before. Uh, but Lord, this book is profound, and there are uh, verses in this book that uh, your Spirit has used in other places in the Scriptures, like Romans, uh, where it has been used uh, to transform uh, many men and women throughout history. Men like Martin Luther who came to the understanding that salvation was through uh, faith uh, and only by your grace. And so, Lord, as we uh, study through this book, we ask, Lord, that you would help us uh, to grow in our faith, to grow in our trust of you. Lord, as we navigate uncertain times, Lord, we ask that you would help us to keep our eyes focused on you, um, even when we don't understand what is exactly happening. And so, Lord, we turn to you now. We ask that your spirit would guide us, that your spirit would direct us as we work through this passage. Uh, And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days. You would not... Believe if you are told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings. And rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on but they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net. Because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful, will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? I will stand my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. 
Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, uh, this is a, a difficult passage in, in some ways, and Lord, there's a lot of insight here um, through the words of Habakkuk and how to respond in the midst of, of difficult and uncertain times. And so, Lord, we ask that you would encourage us now. In Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Okay. So just as a, 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 best, as a sort of a review historically of, of where we came last week, I, uh, I will spare you the whole history lesson of Israel. Uh, but this chart here, uh, you had it in your bulletin last week. I don't know if you, if you if we, it's up here now. Um, so we have sort of the, the history of Israel. On the far left, we see some of the early kings. Uh, the squiggly line shows where the kingdom of Israel was divided uh, following the death of Solomon's reign. Solomon ruled and reigned sort of really in, a, in the golden era of Israel. They were prosperous. They, they lived um, during a time of, they had peace like no other time in history. Um, following his death, though, his son Rehoboam lacked the wisdom, lacked the insight, also had the hand of God against him. Uh, Solomon, as he sort of departed in his latter years through, through women um, and their gods, uh, gods punished him. And so when Rehoboam sort of came to power, um, he, he went to his father's advisors and he asked them for their advice. And they said, well, we think you should rule this way. Keep the people's taxes low. Show them that you love them and that you care for them. And, and they will basically die for you. Then he went to the younger guys, his peers. Um, and he said, what do you guys think? And they say, man, if you want to have power, you need to come down with an iron fist. You need to show them that, that your little thumb is way more powerful than your dad was ever. And you need to tax them. You need to, to basically come down on them harsh so they understand you're a man who means business. And so he followed the advice of, of his contemporaries. Uh, when this happened, Israel had a re- basically a revolt. Um, there was a man who was in exile down in Egypt. He, co- he comes up. Uh, the ten tribes of the north basically split uh, with him as their leader. And the southern two tribes, which becomes Judah, um, they sort of go about their way. The northern kingdom essentially went into total idolatry. Um, they, they established uh, sort of replica places of worship for those who, who have been to Israel with us or those who are planning. You'll go to one location up in uh, Tel Dan, it's called, and there's this big sort of place of, of sacrifice that they set up to sort of uh, create their own um, form of worship that replicated what was happening down in Jerusalem. But as they slipped into um, sort of pagan worship, idolatry, um, God sends them into judgment. The Assyrians, uh, there were three world powers, as we recall from last week. There were the Assyrians who were huge, but in decline. There were the Egyptians that were huge and in decline. And then there were the, the Babylonians, which were huge and increasing in power. Um, in 722 BC, a key date, the Assyrians come down into Israel and they basically take, take Israel, the northern ten tribes, into captivity and haul them away. So there's a period between uh, 522 B.C. and 586 B.C. That's a, uh, 150 years or so. I always uh, doing the math backwards, but, but I, I say about 150 years or so. Um, the, the northern tribe of Israel is gone. They've been taken capti- into captivity. 
the storyline we're following is the southern tribe of Judah, or the, or the southern portion of Israel, Judah, which was made up of two of the tribes, um, predominantly marked by bad kings. Um, they slipped into idolatry as well. They stopped worshiping God as uh, he has called them to worship them. Uh, towards the end here, we see Habakkuk. Habakkuk lived 20 years, the period we're in is 20 years prior to 586 B.C., another key date. In 586 B.C., this is when the Babylonians came down and took Judah captive. Israel ceased to be a nation and never existed as a nation for 2,500 years until May 14th of 1948 when the state of Israel was born again. Um, Really a miracle. I don't think there's ever been a nation that was totally decimated for 2,500 years to be reborn. Um, So it's during this window that Habakkuk lived. He's 20 years out from the Babylonians coming down and basically taking them into captivity. Habakkuk's discouragement is sort of built from a near revival. Uh, This young king, Josiah, at at eight years old, uh, his father died. He became king of the south. Um, At 16, he had sort of this encounter with God and his spirit was sort of set on fire, and he cleansed Israel. He went through the nation, uh, toppled all of the, the idols, um, began to set the people of, of Judah, their hearts towards God. He wanted to rebuild the temple to get it back into repair. Um, there's, there's one story in there where as they're, as they're demoing the temple to get it in repair, he and a priest stumble across these scrolls where they, they encounter the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and they begin reading the scrolls, and they both just start weeping. And so God was, was moving um, during the reign of Josiah. Josiah was a great man, a great warrior. Um, and eventually, as Egypt wanted to come through Israel, or Judah, the southern portion, the king of, of Egypt, ne- 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 Neku, well, I'll spell it, you guys can... We'll just say Nico. I'll say it with authority, and you guys don't question me. Um, he, he sent a letter and said, I want to come through Israel because I have some stuff I need to do up in Assyria. We don't really know what his plan was. He comes through there. Josiah says, no. King says, I don't care about you because you're nobody, so we're just going to keep going. Josiah gets his army in place, and then he slips into the ranks of his army, and he goes to battle with them. And they basically were you know, handled no problem. Uh, but Josiah was killed, and then his, uh, I think it was his brothers, or maybe it was two sons, they, they took over the reign, and they slipped back into idolatry. The whole nation departs from God, and it's under these two other guys leading into the captivity where Habakkuk begins to cry out to God in this book. Um, there was great hope that this revival was, was happening, to see the, basically the legs cut out from under the revival, to see idolatry sort of fill that void and to take over. And Habakkuk, in the beginning, these first four verses, we took, we took a long time last week um, sort of covering these verses. But there's two questions. Um, and, and really all of Habakkuk is sort of this back and forth. Habakkuk speaks in the first four verses. Then God responds in chapter 1, which we look at today. And then Habakkuk responds again. And then God's going to respond again, and then Habakkuk is going to end with what he has to say. That's sort of the, the whole of Habakkuk. But Habakkuk starts 
uh, crying out to the Lord in verse 2. His question number one is, how long, O Lord, will I call for help and you not hear? Basically, you get the impression that Habakkuk is still standing firm with God, is praying to God, seeking God, asking God what in the world is going on around here. He's pleading with him. He's crying out for violence. He doesn't think that God is doing anything, nor does he think that God is actually even hearing his prayers. Then he asks the second question, verse 3, Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? He goes on to say that justice is perverted. The, the whole legal system is corrupt. Um, nothing is working how you want it to work. How is it that I am a human and I am frustrated and discouraged as I look upon the landscape of, of Judah and I'm frustrated in anger and you're sitting back and doing nothing? This is where Habakkuk found himself. And in verse 5, God responds. God says, look at the nations. So I imagine Habakkuk, you know, kind of, okay, the nations around them of significance. We've, we've mentioned um, there's the Assyrians, big, brutal uh, nation. From Habakkuk's perspective, they still would have been big and brutal. From our perspective, historically, we see that they were in the decline he would have looked to the south of, of Egypt, who had basically they'd been responsible for killing the king that he loved so much. Um, from his perspective, they're a huge nation, great power. As we look back in history, they were in the decline. And then there was this, this ruthless people, the Babylonians, who uh, can also be called the Chaldeans. There's, it's a it's synonym. They're, it's the same thing, Chaldeans, Babylonians. Then there's this people, the Babylonians. They were ruthless unlike any other. Um, I think the closest thing that, that we have to them would be modern-day ISIS, but if you multiplied ISIS by billions of people, gave them more resources, gave them more organization, and they were just sort of steamrolling um, the world. I, I sort of imagine like um, ISIS sort of merging with Russia and letting the brutality of ISIS sort of with the resources of Russia, sort of um, dominate the world. They were a huge uh, power. So look amongst the nations. He looks around. I don't know what he sees. God says, observe. Be astonished. Wonder. If I'm, if I'm Habakkuk, I'm getting really excited at this point. Like, God's hearing my prayers. God's heard me. He's, he, when, I, when I cry out to him about violence, when I... Ask him about all this injustice. Now he's speaking to me. And he's telling me to look around. And God's not done yet. He says, as you look around, as you are astonished, as you're wondering. He says, because I am doing something in your days. You would not believe if you were told. All right. <laughs> this is awesome. This is, this is great. Can you imagine how ecstatic Habakkuk would be at this point? I am, um, to, to, be, to be totally honest with you guys, I really thought the election was going to go another direction. Do you guys all kind of think the election was going to go? Like, I think our whole nation thought the election was going to go a different direction. And so I'm not, I don't want to go down sort of a political road, but I have a feeling that if the election went the other direction, that you guys would all be like moping a little bit more today. Um, but I also think that there's a lot of danger 
in the Christian world and in our environment of suddenly thinking because your person won, that, oh, now we're good, God's hearing our prayers. Um, so I would, like, I would be cautious to us as a nation. Um, I would be cautious in thinking because your guy won, thinking that maybe God's working, or if your guy or gal in this case lost, that God isn't working. I, I would be very cautious in examining U.S. sort of history and current events in light of Scripture, because the United States isn't in the Scripture. Um, I would say that we need to sort of look more globally in the sense of what is God doing around the world? What is God doing in the individual's hearts? When I look at the nations through the Scriptures, I see Israel... And I see all other nations and how they sort of deal with Israel. Um, but I'll, I think I'll get more into that later. Um, all, all I was just saying is I was really anticipating that I was going to have a bunch of Christians moping around because their guy lost. And, and, and I, like there's so much more I could say, but I'm just withholding myself. <laughs> Uh, but but, to, but to, to think that, oh, like because the election didn't go the way you thought it was going to go or because it went, to suddenly, like to base everything that you understand about God to be sort of like, oh, well, God's not, you know, whatever. We need to keep our eyes on God. Um, we need to stay focused on him. And I still think that there's a whole lot of lessons here. But I see, I see sort of, Habakkuk like ready to say, let's bring it on, God. What are we going to do? Let's start another revival. Let's get going here. And then all of a sudden, God drops this absolute bombshell. He says, for behold, in verse 6, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Poor Habakkuk's heart would have like, I mean, fallen off his chair, gassed. Confusion would have set in. Um, because I'm one to share my personal information with you guys all the time. <laughs> like, I'm not real guarded all the time. I've, uh, you know, during my, my annual checkup, you know, you go in, you get your checkup, you move on with your life. Anytime I have sort of a medical thing, like with insurance or like, who's your doctor? I'm like, well, it's kind of like some guy at the VA. Like, I don't, I just don't go to the doctor. And so this last annual checkup when I went in for, and they said, oh, you have a hernia. I was like, ugh. And uh, I, I won't use you guys as my counseling session, but so I find myself kind of going in for my first, my first uh, surgery here in a few, like whenever it's scheduled. And, and so today I had to meet with, it was like, you know, the meet and greet with the surgeon. And so I go into the office, I have all my paperwork, and, and uh, there's the page sort of with like your previous medical stuff. And... And so I send it back there. They're processing all the paperwork. And then the nurse kind of comes back and she's like, I need to talk to them. I'm like, uh-oh. She's like, I need to talk to you about your previous history. I'm like, what's wrong? She's like, do you have anything to report? Any surgery? Any, uh-uh. I'm like, well, I had my wisdom teeth taken out when I was in the Navy. Like, does that count? She's like, that doesn't count. She's like, Tylenol, aspirin, anything. I'm like, well, I had a headache a couple weeks ago and I might have taken a Tylenol. She's like, she's like, unbelievable. You're incredibly lucky. And I'm like, lady, well, I didn't say it, I thought it. 
I'm like, I'm sitting here about to interview with a surgeon about getting surgery, and you're telling me I'm incredibly lucky. And I guess there's like perspective is everything about how you view things. Like I guess the surgeon sees people that like have had multiple surgeries. And so I think of Habakkuk going, God seems pretty ecstatic. Like he's moving around the nations. Now he drops his bombshell like I'm raising up the Chaldeans. And Habakkuk's like, what are you talking about, God? Um, let's see how God describes the people of, of, or the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. Look how God describes them. Verse 6, for behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who marched throughout the earth, like the whole known world, they were dominating it, to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are just going through, nobody's stopping them. They roll into a town, they decimate it, they take anything that they want, and the people are sort of left or, or slaughtered. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and their authority originate with themselves. Their power, their might, everything, they are their own God. Their status amongst the world is that this, that they are, nobody can stop them. This is an incredible force. What can you do? All you can do is be taken captive. Maybe the best thing is that you die quickly as you face them. Their horses Throughout the scriptures, you see that the horse is a war animal. Um, a few, uh, not a few weeks ago, but when we were sort of, before we were put on hold in Matthew, remember, how did Jesus roll into Jerusalem? On a donkey. That was an animal of peace. When he comes back, the picture in Revelation says he's coming in on a horse as a war animal in a different way. So, so these people have horses that are fast. They have great speed. They're able to just conquer the world quickly. They're swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. Now my whole, um, like birds of prey, I really like them. Like I, I, I'm impressed with them. Uh, in Valley Center, I've come to play the game, you know, the whack-a-mole game. Like, you could get it. However you can kill a mole is like a victory. And then I, I'm like, well, what do I do with it? And it didn't take me long in Valley Center to realize that you kill a mole, and you just sort of throw it out there on a rock, and by morning it's gone because something takes care of it. Um, I, I've seen, like, some of the falcons deal with it. But about six years ago, when I made this trip to Mongolia, um, Josh was sort of like, well, what are some things you want to do? So I start Googling, like, Mongolia, fun things to do. The list is really short. <laughs> but one of the things that surfaced from the western region of Mongolia, there's the Kazakh people. And these guys have tiny little horses, but they use the golden eagles. And so when you get home on your own time, Google Mongolian eagle wolf or wolves. It is absolutely amazing. These guys take these eagles, and there's video of these eagles basically taking down a wolf. Like, they basically just scoop out of the air, land on the thing. Its, it's talons go into the wolf's thing. They'll even roll around on the ground, and then eventually the eagle just spreads out its wings, holds the eagle. Maybe another eagle comes up, and they decimate this. They, they show them ripping billy goats off of cliffs and basically flying them away. 
So when I got there, I got to hold one of these golden eagles. Like I was on the side of the road going, this is awesome. And the guy's like, jump up and down, jump up and down. I'm like, what's jumping up and down going to do? Like I, I suddenly was, I'm like, I saw these guys like, what, what's going to happen? He's like, no, if you jump up and down, it's going to spread open its wings. And so then I'm jumping up and down. And then the thing spreads out its wings. I'm like, this thing is huge. Now I understand why our national bird is the bald eagle. These things are bad. And so when I read this, like before, I thought, oh, they fly like an eagle and swoop down and like, no big deal. But if you see true eagles like hunting, there is nothing more fascinating than these animals in, in the wild. And this is how the Babylonians are described here by God. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. So if you built a fortress, if you built a wall around a city, if you um, protected yourself, I think of Masada in Israel. If you make the trip down by the Dead Sea, um, King Herod built Masada, this great fortress, impenetrable. And as they were taking over Israel, uh, this land again, as they were going through cleaning house, they got to Masada. There's like a hundred or so people up there living there. And Rome said, you know what? We're going to show them that we reign and rule with a fist. We're going to show them that nobody will bow to us. And over the course of the next year, and when you go there, you can still see it. You can walk down it on the back. Um, that over the course of years, they built a ramp up the back to sort of this is before earth movers, so they just start pull, piling the dirt so eventually they can storm it. And so it didn't matter how big your wall was. It didn't matter how you thought you protected yourself. They would come and they would decimate you, no problem. Verse 11, then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. I see poor Habakkuk sitting here kind of like getting queasy, pale, like he's going to throw up or something, like this is bad. He, this doesn't, like if this was algebra and it was seven times X equals 21, he's like, I can't figure out. I forgot if I said it was a seven or three, but you know, like he's, if he can't figure out what the X, it doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense. And then in the midst of this, God says, but they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. So their issue is idolatry. He gets it. The Babylonians, their strength, their power, their might, they're going to give an account. And this idea that God would use this people, how could God use this unrighteous people to discipline his people? And I think that there's something there that we sort of, it's easy to fall into the trap of, of sort of measuring other people um, based on your righteousness. Because the reality is, is that any instrument, say God uses you to, um, to do something for him, he's using an unrighteous instrument. I hate to break it to you. Like all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us have any good within us. Any righteousness we have, it's because it's God's righteousness that has been imputed to us. And so God here is going to use this nation, this wicked, evil nation of Babylon, to judge his people, Israel. And I just see poor Habakkuk sort of swirling. 
And this week, as I've been thinking of this passage, I remember, you know, during the six weeks when Ben Fredericks was here and Joel was with us kind of going, Joel brought up an illustration I'd used many years ago. And he said it was good, so I'm going to use it again. Uh, So in the SEAL teams, when you start diving underwater and when you are about to sort of attack a ship in particular, um, you... You'll enter the bay, like if it was a San Diego, Veterans Day was this, this Friday, and I went down to San Diego Bay. Coronado had um, sort of commissioned a new statue, and so we got there in the evening, and it was cold. And I was like, oh, man, the memories of, like, diving in this bay just freezing, flooded back to me. But so when you're diving, they'll insert you over by Point Loma or somewhere far away, and you have to sort of swim on your back until you get closer and then eventually you'll go what's called on bag and then you basically start diving and all you have is what's called an attack board it's this it's this little thing that you hold in your hands and there's a depth gauge there's a timer and there's a big old compass that you would see sort of like on a boat and so you basically once you go underwater there's no more looking where you are everything's by faith everything's sort of based on the calculations you've made concerning which way the tide is going and going out, you know how far you go in a given minute. And so it's literally the guy who's called the pilot. All you're doing is remembering, because you can't have anything written down, so it's all in your brain, I have to go at this bearing for this long, and then when I get to that bearing, then I need to make a turn. And then when I make the turn, I need to kick for this many minutes, And then once that many minutes is there, I'm going to have to stop and I'm going to have to make another turn. So you have your whole route underwater in the pitch black. And then if everything eventually goes well, you should hit a wall, (laughs) a quay wall at the end of a pier. And then you go, if I hit this, I'm golden. And then you basically flip around and you go, okay, I need to kick for this many minutes. Then I need to turn and I need to go in and I should hit a ship. And then once you hit the ship, then you sort of are good. But I tell you, um, when you're diving on the kind of rig that we use, you're using 100% oxygen, which is actually bad for you at depth. Um, so you're irritable. You're easily sort of disoriented. You're, you're, it, it's, if you're claustrophobic, it's, it's so easy to lose your bearings. It's so easy to look at your gear and to think, man, that thing's not making any sense. It's not right. I have to go look up. And the guy who's swimming with you, he's not paying attention to any of it. All he's doing is making sure you don't run into anything. And so as you get closer, all of a sudden, when you get near a ship, like a big Navy vessel, they're made out of steel. Steel and compasses don't really mix well to one another. And so things will start spinning on you, and you can't figure out what's going on and they say at that point, just trust your gear, everything gets done, and just kick as fast and hard as you can. And the light will be there because of the ships. And then all of a sudden it goes into pitch blackness. And then you're like, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? And then eventually you hit the ship. But I've probably, I'm probably moving into the lesson of how to attack a ship at night, uh, which that's not, <laughs> we, we want to get back to the, the Bible over here. But, but through this whole journey, the whole idea is that you have to trust your equipment And when you're down there and your mind is swirling and you can't get your bearings, just trust the compass that's before you and hold course. And we're going to see Habakkuk do this. Because what God just told him, it doesn't make sense to him. 
he can't wrap his mind around it. He can't reason away what God just said. God just told him that the Babylonians, by God's description, they're a wicked and evil and treacherous people. That it's these people that he's working through and that he's going to respond to Habakkuk's prayer. Remember, how long will I call out to you? You're not here. How long will I call out to you violence? How long will, uh, how, how, why do you make me see iniquity? And God says, I'm doing something in your day. If I told you, you wouldn't even believe it. And then God says, the Chaldeans, yeah, those guys, the impetuous people, those that, that storm through places and, and wipe out people, those are the ones. We're not talking about different people groups. I'm doing something through them. And they won't, um, they, they will be held accountable. And so now in verse 12, we come from Habakkuk. Great lesson here. He doesn't understand what God is doing. If there was one lesson to gain from all of Habakkuk, it's, it's living by faith. It's all about faith. And, and, and the idea of faith, George Mueller, who was this missionary back in you know, the 1800s, I believe, he said this about faith. Faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. So Habakkuk, there is nothing he can do. All he can do is trust in what God is doing. But when he looks at what God is doing and what God has said he's doing, he still can't make sense of it. And so in the midst of this, and I think there's a great lesson in, in walking by faith here, when you navigate a situation or a circumstance that is greater than you can understand, you don't, like you're searching for God's will, you can't make sense of it, you, you see things and it, it just doesn't compute in your heart, then there's a lesson, I think, from Habakkuk. And that's to shift away from the things that you don't know and you can't understand and you can't answer. Focus on the things that you do know specifically about God. So in the midst of this, Habakkuk responds. And he goes to the things that he knows about God. He says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? He says, I know you're God in eternity. You're my Lord. I trust you. I, I, I know you're holy. There's no evil within you. He continues, we will not die. Some have suggested in the translation of this, they don't know if there should be a question mark there or a period, which changes everything. So it could be that he's just confident. It's like, well, whatever happens to me, I, even if I die, like, I'm okay with you. I'll live in death. Or if you put a question mark there, I don't really, like, I don't, you can really make a solid case to me either way. And he says, will we die through this? Will we, are we going to live? Can we just trust you? I don't know. It shows his uncertainty. But then he continues and he says, Oh Lord, you have appointed them, the Chaldeans, the, the Babylonians to judge. Okay, Lord, I understand. I'm a prophet. I, I saw, I've seen what's happened to our nation from the fall of Josiah to these next two kings to see our nation slip away into idolatry, slip away into evilness, slip away into where the law and the, of the land is perverted. So if you're going to raise up the Chaldeans, if you're going to appoint them, I understand that whatever discipline comes from them, it's ultimately you who's using them as your instrument 
to bring some discipline on us. And he says, and you, O rock, have established them to correct. So his anchor is in God. And he says, God, even though I don't understand, I understand that you're using them to bring this, them on us. He continues, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. He's, he's building on the, the case of God's holiness. He knows that God is pure. He knows that God is not evil. He knows that God can't approve evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. Last week, I sort of mentioned that the path to Christian maturity is marked with this idea that we have to sort of it's a problem for the Christian or the Jewish person who holds to there's a good God. And so we each, as we navigate life, as you get older, you're going to have to contend with wrestling. How do we deal with evil in this world? How do we deal with hard things that come our way? Last week I shared about the struggle that Anna and I had early in our marriage when we lost our first child that that, that period of grappling with, Lord, if you're good and you love us, how can this be happening? And I can look back on that season and see how God used that to, to bring uh, me closer to Christ, to bring maturity in my life. And Habakkuk's wrestling with this. And somewhere between verse 13 and the rest, like, I kind of feel like he's making progress and then all of a sudden he kind of he stumbles off the rock. He sort of slips. And his mind sort of runs away on him. Because as he talks about wickedness, he says, you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Then he says, and why do you look with favor on those that deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them. The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away in their net, and gather them in their fishing net. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they offer a sacrifice to their net, and they burn incense to their fishing net. Notice this. The fishing net is their power. They're, they're, they're just like people are described like these faces in the Chaldeans, like we're little sardines or, or minnows or something where they can just throw their net out and just swoop them all up. That's how powerful they are. Then after they swoop up and dominate all the people, they pull their net out, and they begin worshiping and making offerings to this net, their power. For us, it would be worshiping our you know, our F-18 planes, our warships, all of these things. Like, we are such a great nation because we are indomitable. We can dominate any country. I don't care who you are. And so we worship ourselves by our own strength. And that's what Habakkuk is saying about the Babylonians. Because through these things, their catch is large, verse 16, and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing. I'm not really encouraged by Habakkuk here. I don't know about you guys, but there are times when it's like I can take out a step in great faith and I'm like, I trust you, Lord. Like, this is going to be great. I, uh, like the most recent one was his whole trip to Africa. Like, I really didn't want to go to Africa. Like, I did not. I was trying to find a way out of Africa no matter what, like, like every which way. And then... God provided the funds for me to go. And it's like, all right, Lord, I see that your handwriting is on the wall. You want me to go. I want to go. And 
And um, so I really did well. Then a couple days goes by, and I'm laying in bed, tossing it her. I'm like, Lord, but there's crazy people in Africa, and I got to go through, like, ISIS. And, and, like, I just, even the people at SIM said I wouldn't make a good missionary to Africa. Why are you now sending me to Africa? Like, really, like, the whole process. And then the next day, I'd be like, okay, Lord, you've called me. I'm good. I can do this. I trust you. I'm going to Africa confidently without fear. Then three days later, tossing and turning. Like the, the whole emotional roller coaster of like, I'm doing really good. Then I fall apart. So Habakkuk does really good. Then he falls apart. Then he's like, then by chapter two, verse one, he sort of pulls himself together. He's keeping his eyes on the Lord. And he's like, no, 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 I can do this. He says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. And I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. So Habakkuk finishes his second interaction with God. He, he really is done at this point. Because as we go to chapter 3, verse 1, see, God's going to respond to what just happened. And when we go to chapter 3, verse 1, it's going to be not necessarily, it's God talking to Habakkuk, but it's really a prayer of Habakkuk which in my mind is sort of, I know prayer is talking to God, but it's more like he's, God's done his work in his, his life. But so now back to this, what Habakkuk is going to do. I see, um, I see Habakkuk doing three things. He says, I will stand my guard post and station myself on the rampart and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I'm reproved. Um, on Monday night, the, Monday's night event was really great. Um, I, I really enjoyed our time praying as a community and worshiping. Um, I remember sort of then saying to everybody, you know, we're, we're, we're not here as a sort of a political thing. We're here to pray for our, our, our city, our state, our nation, and really the ends of the world. And I, I said something along the lines of like my like the assumption is that if you were there praying that you've already probably cast your votes or you know how you're going to vote or you know what you're going to do sort of concerning the election. And so that we'd done everything that we could actually do. And so it wasn't at that point to necessarily, there was all we could do was to call out to God and ask that his spirit would sort of go work through our nation, work through our leaders to pray for them. And the reality is, regardless of how you voted or didn't vote or handled whatever, it's done. It's done. And we're still called to do the same thing. The Bible still calls us as followers of Christ to pray for our leaders. We all sort of laughed when one of the pastors said, hey, when was the last time you prayed for Jerry Brown? And we all kind of collectively said, oh. oh, um, It was convicting, really convicting. But the Bible makes it clear that we need to be praying for our leaders, like here at our, at our, at our local level, at our, at our city level, um, or county level, and, and, and to the state, to the nation, to the world. And so Habakkuk, he sort of follows this. He's called out to God. God's responded. God's, God told him what he's going to do. 
some ways I'm thankful God hasn't totally like revealed to us what's going to happen in our lifetime with our politics and stuff. And so Habakkuk, what he does when he sees this, he's wrestled with God. He's like, I don't understand how you're doing this, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to stand my guard post. And I get the I get the impression that what he's saying is he's like, I'm just going to continue to pray to you. I'm going to meditate on your word. I'm going to seek you. I'm going to lift this whole situation up to you. He says, I'm going to keep watch. Um, there's the idea that he's just going to sit there in silence and to allow God to sort of speak. I think all of this is good for us to do. We should continue to pray for our nation, continue to pray for the world leaders, continue to, to lift them up so that it would go well for us, the Bible says, so that we would live in peace, that we would be a light unto the world. He then, the last one is almost hilarious. But there's probably the most amount of wisdom there. He completely humbles himself before the Lord. And he says, and how I may reply when I am reproved. So he's praying to the Lord. He's seeking God. He's waiting upon him. And if God happens to speak to him again, that he's going to prepare himself for how to respond to God when God reproves him, when God corrects him. I see Habakkuk just totally broken and encouraged and like God is still working. It's not going the way that Habakkuk thinks it should go. As I said before, he's found in this place where uh, the realm where faith has the ability to operate because he's helpless. Um, I think some lessons that we can learn when you find yourself in trying times to really call out to God. Throughout the scriptures, the Bible encourages us to pray, to seek him, to, to pray always, to communicate with God that God wants us to communicate to him. I see the lesson of Habakkuk to, to focus on what you know about God. When you're driving down the road and your transmission falls out, go, well, Lord, I know you're not trying to punish me. Like, I'm thankful that I had a car for the transmission to fall out upon. Um, to, to, to really just to trust him and to focus on the things that you know about God, that God is love, that he cares for you, that he, that he sent Christ to die for you. There are so many things, and especially as we enter this season of Thanksgiving, there are so many things that we can just give thanks to God and to, to basically remind ourselves of who we are, of who he is, so that we don't have to get all sort of spun out of control by the situation around us. And then what we see sort of easing into next week, sort of, is what I see throughout the scriptures is that God's wrath is always preceded by a warning. That as the warning comes, God responds by grace. Because look at how God just, I'm going to loop back next week. And, but look at verse 2. Look how the Lord answers. Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. That's encouraging. That God would, God says, write it down so that the person that sees it can respond. Now, translators have gone a whole bunch of different ways on this, and I think all of them are brilliant or good, so I'm, not, I'm okay with all of them. Like, the one is that the person could see the warning and that they can run, meaning to sort of respond to God. 
The other person reads it that they can respond to God and then they can run with the message to others. Those are all great with me. But Habakkuk, Habakkuk is told by God, you write it down, present it to people so they can respond. For the vision is yet for the appointed time, for it hastens towards the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. For behold, as the proud one, his soul is not right within him. But the righteous will live by his faith. That's the verse that transformed Martin Luther. This is the verse that Paul uses in in Romans and other places. But God says, write it down. My wrath is coming, but my grace is there for people to respond. I think about Hebrews 11. I, I had it written down. I'm, I've been re- kind of reading and listening through the Bible this year. And I, and I, got, I got behind a little bit. Um, not, not, like, I'm really doing I'm really proud of myself. But the pride is bad. I've read today, so I'm not really proud. I'm actually made it a lot further this year than I anticipated, um, thanks to a Bible app. And so then this morning, I was like about three days behind, so I'm like, I'm going to like quickly listen um, to what's happening. And I listened to Hebrews chapter 11 today. And the thing that strikes me about Hebrews 11, for those of you that are unfamiliar with this chapter in the Bible, this is referred to the chapter of the heroes of the faith. And so there's all these great men and women who God gave them a promise They responded to the promise. They lived by faith. And and pretty much none of them were able to actually see the promise that God gave fulfilled. And these people are lifted up by God as an example. I see Habakkuk here. That, That faith is trusting what God tells us, even though we can't see it, even though we can't wrap our minds around it. And as God's wrath comes... His grace is always there sort of sort of like leading the way and sort of cleaning up the background. And, and this is the gospel. Like, what is the gospel? You know, yesterday I met with a couple and without going into all the details, they, they both are sort of, of, they would describe themselves as being a little bit religious. And so as I met with them and, and sort of talked about um, where, what does that mean to them and, and what do they think Christianity is, and, and at, as, as I got along the line, I said, well, do you, could you, do you feel comfortable enough sort of defining the gospel, like, to me? And I'm like, I'm not trying to embarrass you. I'm just trying to sort of pick your brains. I, I want to know where you guys are at so that, so, so just so I can help you. And so they kind of like the one said, well, like it's love and there's Jesus and stuff and kind of like, you know, kind of like fumbling through the hot potato, like looking to the other one, like, can you help me out here? And it's like, well, it's just like loving the people and stuff. And, and I said, guys, okay, let's start at Genesis. <laughs> Sin enters the world. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are sinners not because I commit a sin and then that makes me a sinner. Genetically, I'm born into sin. And because I have the genetics of a sinner at birth, that causes me to commit acts of sin. And so then I'm like, as you follow the story of the Bible, God makes some promises. And then eventually, Jesus comes, who's this Messiah. 
He enters into human history. He leads a perfect life. And he eventually goes to the cross, not guilty of anything except claiming to be God, which he in fact was. And then on the cross, the wrath of God is placed upon him. And the penalty that is due us and our sin is fully absorbed in the cross. And I said, the Bible tells us that he died, he was buried, and then on the third day he rose again. And I said, the, the gospel is as simple as that. And that we each have a choice to either respond to this gift or to reject it. But we see the story of Habakkuk there that this wrath is coming to his people of the southern kingdom of Israel. And in the midst of this letter, we see that God's grace is right there. Write it down, Habakkuk. Give the people an opportunity to run, to respond to this warning that I'm given, giving to them. And it really is a beautiful lesson to us that we would first respond to God's opportunity uh, that he's given us of salvation through the cross. That as we go through our lives and we face difficulties in this fallen world, that we would trust upon him, that we would live by faith. Um, and don't get too wrapped up in like politics, your pocketbook, your, th- these worldly things. Like at the end of the day, what matters is our relationship with God and trusting him to sort of navigate life. And that as we navigate life, that we would bring glory to him. And through history, as you see the church persecuted, there's something glorious that happens in the midst of persecution uh, to the world that is involved even in the persecution, seeing uh, conversions happening, seeing lives transformed through difficult things, things that we would certainly never, ever, ever choose for ourselves. And so, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, I thank you for the, this, this little book of Habakkuk. Uh, Lord, there's um, some, some weighty items in here. Historic is, historically, as we look back to the southern kingdom and seeing how you raised up the Babylonians, this, this, uh, this wicked and really evil people, Lord, to see how you used them uh, to do a work through the people of Israel. Uh, fast forwarding, seeing you know, Daniel just live in captivity and seeing how you used him in a mighty way, how many promises sort of came through that. Lord, we look to you in the midst of our day as we look at our nation, as we look at the world, as we look at uh, how people are so divided, um, Regardless of how the, this election turned out, half of our nation seems like they'd be excited and the other half would be upset and vice versa. And So, Lord, we ask, um, as your people, as your church, Lord, that you would help us to keep our eyes on Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us to um, be loving to the world around us, that we would be burdened for those apart from Christ. Lord, help us um, to honor you in our lives. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Christ's good name.